You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. and welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. I'd like to start this episode out by giving a special shout-out to a couple of people this week. First one being to Miss Ashley Blue for spreading the word about the podcast and getting us a few new listeners. Woohoo! Welcome, new listeners! I am thrilled to have you here. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. I also hope that you don't think that I am totally and completely annoying. I know that I can be. That's not self-deprecating. It's just fact. So, yeah. But anyways, I'm really glad that you're here. I hope that you truly enjoy the podcast. And I hope that you come back again and give us another listen. Next shout out is to my kindred spirit in true crime, Amber. Amber suggested this case to me weeks ago, and I am finally getting around to recording it. So I hope you enjoy it as well. If this podcast ever really does take off and blows up, I am hiring Amber as my true crime researcher. She has sent me so many cases. And she knows so much about them. So, Amber, whenever you listen to this, this is an official job offer whenever the podcast is making bank and I can pay you what you deserve. All right. I don't think I have anything else to add to this intro, so let's dig in. Waynesboro, Tennessee. It's a place that's known for its natural beauty. Sitting close to the Natchez Trace, a stone's throw away from the Tennessee River, and surrounded by rolling hills, it really is a place where you can experience true southern beauty. Usually, the farther west you travel in Tennessee, the less beautiful it gets, but it seems like Wayne County is kind of in a sweet spot. I think it's prettier than Pulaski, which is to the east of Lawrenceburg, but that's not important. What's important is this case. So, Waynesboro. It has kind of a reputation. Growing up, it was always described to me as a place you just don't want to go. It was always put in a negative light. Think the Lion King when Mufasa and Simba are talking about the Pride Lands and where the light touches. When Simba asks about the shadowy areas, Mufasa says, Those are beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. Side note, please don't come at me with a lawsuit for quoting The Lion King. Thank you. But that's how I grew up, thinking of Waynesboro and Wayne County. Now, I know that there are a lot of good people who are from or currently reside in Wayne County, just like there are here in Lawrenceburg. Lawrenceburg also has a reputation. And a reputation doesn't have to define a place or a person for that matter. 
So I don't want to come at the county and make it sound like everyone there is evil because they aren't by any means. This is just how I was brought up, thinking it was a bad place. In all actuality, it's a really cute little town with one of the best restaurants nearby called Emeralds. Talk about a burger you won't forget. Oh my gosh. They also have a really quaint downtown area, and when it comes to historic, vintage, beautiful places, I am a sucker. My goodness. So, I've never had a bad experience in Waynesboro, and I'm sure that I'll visit again in the very near future and will continue to visit as long as they don't outlaw me for, you know, recording this episode. So, people of Wayne County, please don't hate me. You know, I talked bad about Lawrenceburg in the episode about Jansen Brewer, and I'm sure that I will talk bad about Lawrenceburg again. It's not personal. And, you know, maybe things have changed over time. Or maybe it was never a bad place. Maybe... I just lived a really sheltered life. And I mean, I did live a really sheltered life. Like, across the street was a really bad place for me, you know. And we had some of the kindest neighbors across the street in the world. But you get what I'm saying. So I definitely don't want to come across as, like, loathing the town of Waynesboro or Wayne County. I guess I just don't really know it well enough. And maybe with this story, I can bring some light to the town and show that the community as a whole is full of really wonderful people. If you're like me, though, and I've never heard about this case, it may surprise you knowing what happened, where it happened, how it happened, and by the hands of the people it happened by. So without further ado, this is the case of Rose Goggins. 21-year-old Rose Goggins was a Georgian native, only being in Tennessee for a few short years before meeting Stephen Beersdorf Jr. Now, I do want to say that Stephen Jr. is obviously a junior, and his dad, who is also a part of the story, is Stephen Sr., so, you will hear me saying Stephen a lot, but they will be differentiated by junior and senior. I don't know the story of how Rose and Stephen Jr. met or how long they had been together, but what I do know is that they had an 11-month-old son together, they were engaged, and they were living with Stephen's parents, Sylvia and Stephen Beersdorf Sr. There was some tension in between Rose and the Beersdorfs. I've heard differing things saying they didn't like Rose because of her background, which I don't know anything about, and also because she was sneaking around Stephen Jr.'s back and sleeping around. Either way, the Beersdorf parents did not approve of Rose. Despite this, though, they let her and the baby move in with them while Stephen Jr. was away at Camp Shelby 
in Mississippi doing basic training. He was in the National Guard and was going to be deployed to Iraq. While he was doing this, Rose was about to start taking classes at Columbia State Community College in Lawrenceburg for EMT training, which is something that I almost did around the same time as this, um, which is really crazy. Rose hadn't started her classes yet, but she really was looking forward to them and being able to better herself and do something for her and her family. She was ready to embark on a new journey and really start to everything that she needed to do to be a good wife and mother and eventually an EMT. Rose's first day of class started on January 14th, 2010. Side note, that's the day before my birthday. She would leave for her class, but Rose would never show. Instead of starting a new journey, Rose's life would take an unexpected turn and tragically, tragically be taken from her at just 21 years old. Although Rose technically went missing on January 14th of 2010, a missing persons report wouldn't be filed until January 16th of 2010, and only at the urging of her fiancé, Stephen Jr. Since he was in Mississippi at the time, he didn't know that she had gone missing, but when his parents finally did tell him over the phone that she'd gone to class on the 14th and hadn't come back since, Stephen Jr. told them to call the police and report her missing. I would like to note here that his parents waited two days before they told Stephen Jr. and reported Rose missing. Two freaking days. That's crazy. So when they called the police, they came up with some excuse that she'd gone to class and never come home and was probably with another guy because she'd been sleeping around on their son, which I don't know how much, if any, of, if any truth is in that. From what I could find, Rose seemed really sweet and really loved Stephen Jr. and wanted to be with him. I think maybe his parents just said that because they wanted Stephen Jr. to think that she was a horrible person and, you know, if she was running around on him behind his back, then maybe he would get her out of their lives. But I really don't know for sure. But back to the point. When police were called, a missing person report was made and search efforts were immediately dispatched. It didn't take investigators long to learn, though, that, wow, that sentence sounded really messed up. I have a migraine tonight, and so this is just, yeah, so forgive me. So, it didn't take long, though, for investigators to learn that Rose actually never showed up to her class on the 14th. And after doing some digging, they discovered that they found Rose's car in McNary County, which is about 55 miles away from Wayne County. 
on an isolated logging road. And so, they found her car on the 15th of January, which is my birthday. And she wasn't reported missing until the 16th. So, that was kind of somewhat of a red flag right there. So, some reports I found said that the car had been set on fire. Others said that it had been buried. And others said that it was just left sitting on the road. So, I don't know the actual condition of the car when it was found. I just know that the car was found before the missing persons report was filed. According to Snapped Killer Couples, Stephen Sr. had done some time in prison. And when he'd gotten out, he had stayed in touch with a previous cellmate who he had come over to their home to do some work. While the previous cellmate was there working on the home, Stephen Sr. stated to him that he and Sylvia really hated Rose, and they even offered to pay him a pretty good sum of money to kidnap Rose. The cellmate declined. I believe more money was offered, but he still declined. So, instead, Stephen Sr. decided to take matters into his own hands. But, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. It really wouldn't take long at all for police to start questioning the Beersdorfs about Rose's disappearance. They were really skeptical about their story, and ultimately the couple did confess to killing Rose, but their story still didn't make much sense. Stephen Sr. had said that Rose had gotten back from her EMT class and an argument broke out between them. He said that Rose attacked him and that he was only defending himself. He said he pushed her and she fell and hit her head on a rock in the yard. When she didn't get up, he knew she was dead. And so he took her car to McNary County and threw her body into the Tennessee River on the way. A search team was sent out to look for Rose's body in the river, but they came up empty-handed. When the police told Stephen that, or what they had found, or lack thereof, Stephen then said that his previous cellmate had done it, and that he didn't know where her body was. Now, differing things again, said differing things. <laughs> One said that the previous cellmate was not in prison. One said that he was back in prison. So, if anybody actually knows, feel free to let me know. I hate finding differing reports saying different things so frustrating. Like, just get the story right, for goodness sakes. And I'm going to go on a tangent here for just a minute. This is off the record, so 
Yeah. Why is it so hard to find information about cases? Like, how come I can find no background on this girl? Like, her actual date of birth, where she was born, you know, the story of how her and Stephen Jr. met. Like, there was nothing there. There have been several cases that I've wanted to cover, but there's not enough information to cover it. Like, how do people find information? It makes me so mad. And, like, I hate having to listen to other people cover the case that I'm wanting to do because then it's like I'm ripping them off and that's not what I want to do. That's not the podcaster that I want to be. If I'm going to bring you a true crime case, I want to be able to bring you the accurate information. I want to bring you the facts. And if I can't get the facts, how can I tell them to you? But, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are back on the record now. Regardless of whether or not this cellmate, I don't even know his name, but whether or not this cellmate was or was not in prison, he was questioned. And he told them about the encounter that he'd had at the Beersdorf's home and was like, hey, he told me that they hated her. He offered to pay me money to kidnap her. I said no. So whatever happened to her, I didn't do it. And just a little side note here. I am so glad that this man was believed. Okay? Because I know that when a previous criminal is accused of doing something, it seems like it is so difficult for them to be found innocent or perceived as innocent if they have any kind of record. And so I am just so glad that this guy was believed and that they listened to him and that he did not get charged for Rose's murder. Like, just, that's such a good thing. So happy about that. So at some point during all of this, and again, I don't know because I couldn't find the actual facts on it, but police were able to get a search warrant for the Beersdorf's home. They lived on a pretty decent sized piece of land and it was pretty isolated. And so they really didn't know exactly where to start the search, but they ended up starting somewhere around the backyard. It would not take long at all after digging through the dirt in the backyard that they would begin to find pieces of bone. One in particular piece that was found was about the size of the palm of your hand. And that turned out to be a piece of Rose's skull, which is just heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. 
with these bone fragments being found, they were officially able to charge Stephen Sr. and Sylvia with Rose's murder. And after doing DNA testing, they were able to confirm that the bone fragments belonged to Rose. Stephen Sr. eventually confessed to killing Rose and using a backhoe to try to dismember and scatter her body. Once again, I've heard differing things from differing sources on how she was actually killed, but the most common thing that I've seen is that Stephen Sr. strangled Rose, then used the backhoe. Now, while Stephen Sr. was the only one who acted in the murder, Sylvia was not innocent. She knew of Stephen Sr.'s plans and did not stop him or inform in authorities of his plan. So, on January 28th of 2011, 2010, I'm getting my stuff confused. Sylvia and Stephen Sr. were arrested. In March of 2011, Stephen Sr. and Sylvia pled guilty and accepted deals from the prosecution so they wouldn't have to face a trial. Sylvia was sentenced to 15 years for conspiracy. She was released in 2019. All that's known about Sylvia today is that she resides somewhere in Tennessee. Stephen Sr. was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder. He will be 99 years old when he is eligible for parole. So, I know this isn't, well, this is kind of all over the place. And I know that a lot of that is just on me for not being able to find a good amount of, like, credible information. But I also, like I said a little bit ago, have a horrible migraine and my head is completely spaced out. So I really do apologize for kind of the abruptness of how this started to go on or how the episode went on but this girl this innocent girl was murdered by her soon-to-be in-laws something that i read said that they decided to kill her because she wanted to move out of the house and take the baby with her. But then that kind of contradicts what other sources have said about wanting her gone and out of their house. So, I really don't know how much truth is in that in itself. I 
I think it's also important to note that in the both of the TV documentaries that I've seen, the murder comes to town, horror in the hollow, and then the snapped killer couples episode. They portrayed that Stephen Jr. had a really bad temper and that he was abusive to Rose. Nothing else that I read said anything about that. Not a thing. So I don't know if there's any truth to that, but... If there is, then he's a piece of crap as well. If there's not any truth to that, then I cannot imagine the horror that he has gone through knowing that his parents killed the mother of his child and the woman that he wanted to marry. I don't know what if Stephen Jr. has anything to do with either of his parents, I don't know if he has any kind of relationship with either one of them. I personally don't think that I could have any kind of relationship with my parents if they did something like that, but that's just me. The only thing that I do know is that Stephen Jr. does have custody of his and Rose's son. And, I mean, that was... That's his son. He should have had custody of his son. But there's just not any other information about them. I also want to say that I am so thankful that my in-laws have never tried to kill me. We may not always agree on things and we may not always see eye to eye. But in the end, I know that I love them and they love me. And even if we are at odds sometimes, we're still family and we still love each other. I am also very thankful that my mother has loved my husband just like he was one of her own kids. I mean... He has been part of the family since day one. But I think that is all that I am going to be able to do tonight. I truly do apologize for the way this episode went. I know that it is not the best that I have ever done. But the longer I sit here and try to record the more it feels like there is an axe in the left side of my skull. And I'm just ready to go crawl in the bed and sleep this pain in the head off. So thank you guys so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. Again, I apologize because I know that this is not the greatest episode ever. I may end up redoing this one in the future. If you want to listen to a good episode, go back and listen to Hometown Horrors, The Case of Jansen Brewer.
listen to that one, share that one. That family is still searching for answers. So go check it out. Until then, or until next week, I hope that you guys have a great weekend. Have a great week. And the record will so reflect. <laughs>